you turn back in your Bibles at this time to that passage in Isaiah chapter 6 that we read earlier, we want to talk about today the ultimate crisis. The word crisis is actually a Greek word, and originally it was meant to be a legal process of judgment. Aristotle used it to refer to a legal procedure that secured civic order. Jesus himself used it a couple different times in the New Testament. Once in Matthew 10.15 and John 5.22. And he also referred to it as the day of judgment. It would be more tolerable or bearable for those in Sodom and Gomorrah than it would be in the area of Galilee where Jesus was because they rejected his word. And Jesus said one day there would be a great crisis. In John 5.22 he said there would be a day of judgment and that day of crisis would separate the wicked from the righteous. In a fascinating really research study by historians uh, Kosilek and Richter on the etymology of the word crisis, they said in their study that it was a word that has now evolved from meaning a judgment regarding right and wrong to a change in the course of things. And they said over the centuries, crisis has been used to refer to matters uh, that reach a boiling point. Certainly we would have to say, wouldn't we, that the COVID-19 virus is one of those crises has come to a boiling point. It's really, in some ways, Different crises have not been a new thing in our culture. I mean, the boiling point changes in circumstances from year to year, but in 2019, uh, we were facing an opiate crisis, and then a refugee crisis, and then a border crisis. But really, truthfully, just a quick glance at the social media helps us to understand that we also, according to social media, we faced a video gaming crisis, a Captain Marvel crisis, and a bad hair day crisis. Uh, Jonathan Dodson says, once a dense word referring to fixed moral judgments and powerful changes, crisis has devolved into a word that just simply signifies moments of uncertainty. The article I read by him said uncertainty like, will my hair be looking good enough today? Or how will the Star Wars series end? Or as one person tweeted recently, I'm in a parking spot crisis. Um, Certainly the word crisis has become individualistic and relative in its meaning. And it is my proposition this morning to all of you that we must retrieve the original ancient meaning of crisis And the reason why that is so powerfully important is we need to rediscover, once again, what the true definition of right and wrong is. This is urgent, truthfully urgent for all of us, not because of the crisis that's out there only, but really truthfully because of the crisis that is in here. And I want to take the time we have this morning to let me show you what I really mean by that. In our text, Israel and the prophet Isaiah were facing what I would call an original meaning type crisis. It was a day of judgment that was looming on the horizon. And the crisis out there, from Isaiah's perspective, um, looms in the phrase or is embedded in the little phrase beginning in verse 1 in the year that King Uzziah died. See, he was having visions given to him by God 
and he records them during the reign of four kings. You can see that in Isaiah 1.1. Those kings were, and first our king, Uzziah, then Jotham, then Ahaz, and Hezekiah. And Uzziah was one of the best kings Israel had had in many, many ways. And you can read the bio of his life that is actually chronicled in the book of Chronicles, in 2 Chronicles 26. He was a great king. He restored a lot of things, security, military, worship, in a lot of ways. But the more and more he became prosperous, seemingly the less and less dependent he became on God. And in his pride, he became complacent and he began to think that he could do things that weren't allowed for kings to do according to Torah. And he offered incense offering in the holy place in the temple, which was forbidden except for priests and He would not get out of the temple, even when 80 priests came in to get him out. And he immediately was struck down in his forehead with leprosy, if you read the text for yourself. And what we find that what was true of Uzziah had already been true of his people. They had become complacent in their worship of God. God, over time, because things had gone so well in their nation, he had become unreal to them. And so the death of King Uzziah, as the text reveals, becomes a crisis. And judgment, because of their idolatry, is looming on the horizon. And what most people I found who speak on this text don't mention too much, and I want to today, is all that was taking place coming up to this text. If you read Isaiah chapter 5, you're going to see that the judgment oracles were already being pronounced. In fact, seven of them, the number of completion. And and Isaiah is telling them because they have become complacent, God has become unreal, that there is judgment. And he says, woe, woe to these people. And he says it in chapter 5. If you want to circle them in your text, please do. Chapter 5 and verse 8, verse 11, verse 18, verse 20. Verse 21, and twice in verse 22, seven judgment oracles, all woe, woe to Israel. And in one of them, in particular, chapter 5 and verse 20, it reads this, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. In other words, they were reversing the definitions of right and wrong, see? And that's why the crisis was coming. And can you not hear and see the echoes of that very thing taking place on a daily basis in American culture? I mean, truthfully, someone has switched the price tags. I read a story one time of criminals who broke into a store and uh, not to steal anything. But what they did was go throughout the entire store and switched the price tags on everything. And everything that was expensive now became cheap. And everything that was cheap now became expensive. And when the store opened the next day, people had a heyday in that store because everything had been reversed. Can I tell you, Isaiah is saying this of God's people, that something has gone wrong, terribly wrong, criminally wrong. They are switching. Someone has switched all the right and wrong tags Good has now become evil, and evil has become good. And so it is in the day in which you and I live. That is true in the category of sexuality. 
that has become true in the area of marriage. People now in many states freely smoke marijuana where before that was illegal. Uh, Family has completely changed in its definition. God is no longer respected or revered in our culture. Divorce, which was once looked down upon, has become commonplace and so has the sexual revolution in our culture amongst fornication and adultery and homosexuality. And it made, as one writer had said this, it is the startling phenomena that evil has become respectable. Now, in Isaiah's day, all of these woes and all of these things were happening. But if you read chapter 1, what's going to completely shock you is they were still going, can I say, to church. They were still going to the temple. They were still carrying out the worship requirements. They were still giving all the sacrifices. And they were going as if everything was okay. But behind the scenes in their lives, they were actually worshiping anything and everything but God. And if you read Isaiah 1, chapter 1, verses 10 through 20, you'll find that their private and public lives were not aligned. The Israelites had settled for appearing good without being good. So much so that here's what chapter 1, verse 16 and 17, this is the admonition God's people have to hear. It says, cease to do evil, learn to do what is good. Now these are people who are going to the temple. These are people who say and act like they worship God. But they have reversed the definitions and good and evil has been turned upside down. See, there was a fissure between their public and private lives of worship. This failure in alignment between our private and public worship lives hits the headlines in America fairly regularly, doesn't it? I mean, people exposed by the Me Too movement One in particular, probably best known, best liked news anchor, Matt Lauer, who confessed to, and I quote, his inappropriate sexual behavior. When you read stories like that, you have to ask, don't you, the question, aren't success in a great family enough? And the answer, not if power goes to your head. Actors and musicians such as Wesley Snipes and Willie Nelson were prosecuted for tax evasion. And you have to ask yourself the question, are the millions of dollars not enough? Not when greed gets into the heart. Before we judge others too harshly, I think maybe we should hit the pause button for a moment and just consider what journalists would turn up in our lives if they, weren't, they went digging for a bit. You see, the public-private division of our lives isn't restricted to Hollywood people or famous people. If we're honest, we'd have to say, wouldn't we? We too harbor greed. We too let stuff go to our head. We too dabble in deception and linger over lust, don't we? The Me Too movement has prompted yet another hashtag, and it's called Church Too. And in that, we've seen the tendency of Christians, believe it or not, to overlook sexual abuse. We've seen it in our own mission agencies. We've seen it in churches, often dismissing this type of sinful behavior and noticing it as overreacting. 
Over the last number of years, we've seen as well a number of high-profile pastors who have been relieved from their pastoral duties, even though they are very high-profile pastors, written books, or famous speakers. And the reason is, is because of the regular harsh treatment of those who work on their staffs. And no longer are people willing to tolerate those types of leaders and, and brush it off as a personality or leadership style. See, what matters most to you? How you are seen in public or what you actually do in private? Do you want people to think you are a holy person without doing the hard work of being a holy person? See, when you and I become more concerned with keeping up appearances in public than cultivating holiness in private, we have added to, we have contributed to the crisis out there, the widening gap between our private and public lives. But as you see the crisis out there, and you focus on that, it can make it very easy at times for us to overlook and even, honestly, virtually ignore the crisis that's in here. That's where our text comes in. See, Isaiah's focus, like all of us, had been on the king who was out there. But now in our text, in the vision he has, the first thing out of his mouth after King Uzziah has died, is he has a, do, a new focus, and it's a contrasted focus. He says, I saw the Lord. I'm not any longer looking at the king out there or over there, but the king up there, he says. Now, King Uzziah was a king who deserved our focus, but his life didn't end well. He was unholy right inside the temple. Read it for yourself. In 2 Chronicles 26.16, he tried, as I said before, to offer incense on the altar of incense. And if you know anything about the insides of the temple, in the holy place, which was right, right next to the holy of holies where God's presence dwelled, on the right-hand side of that was the altar of incense. It was called the Mitzbach Hakatoret, or as other people called it, the golden altar or the inner altar. It was the very altar that... In Luke chapter 1, Zechariah was offering incense on when the angel come and, uh, came and told him that he would have a son, John the baptizer. And that is where the king was. Uzziah went in there. He wasn't to be in there. It was forbidden for him to be there. But he took it upon himself in his pride to think that he was really more important or above God's law. God taught him a serious lesson that day, and he was struck down in leprosy. And if you read the end of 2 Chronicles 26, here's what you're going to find about this great king Uzziah. He lived the remainder of his life, which was a number of years, 15, I believe. He lived outside the temple, never went in the temple ever again, and he died outside the temple. And the words describing this is that he was cut off. That's the kind of king he was. As great as he was, he lived and died outside of the temple. In contrast to that, Isaiah sees the Lord. He sees King Jesus in all of his holiness. And what this text describes is that not that the temple is, is Jesus' presence is not in the temple. Oh no, oh no, the opposite of that. 
he fills the temple with his presence. In fact, the scripture says that the train of his robe filled the temple. When you had a robe and you wore it as a king, it was a symbol of your power. And if you were a king who defeated another king in battle, you would cut off part of the king's robe that you defeated and they would sew it into your robe. And the idea is that Jesus is so powerful, Jesus is so victorious, he has the ability to triumph over all of his enemies, that his robe, the train of his robe, fills the entire temple. In other words, there is no king like this. There is no one who has power and if his, like this, and if his people would just worship him, if his people would just be committed to him and honor him, not with this chasm between their private and personal, I mean their public lives, that he has the ability to defeat any enemy they might face because he is the powerful king of kings. Twice in the text, just to emphasize it a little bit more, he calls Jesus the Lord of hosts. It's a military term. He is the captain of the army of angels. And who is Jesus compared to Uzziah? Well, he's everything Uzziah is not. He's all-powerful. He's perfect. He's never defeated in battle. And he is the one who leads the armies of angels. And if that wasn't enough, we could add to the picture the description in verse 1 which says he is high and lifted up. If you turn to 1 Kings 10, don't do it, but on your own, verses 18 through 20, you'll find a description of this throne of Solomon Solomon's throne was great and heavy and it was ivory and it was overlaid with gold and it was high and lifted up. In other words, from the main floor, he built six steps. You had to walk up six grand steps to get to the top of Solomon's. On each one of these steps, there were 12 lions there, massive lions that were there. Because when you went up to King Solomon, he was high and lifted up. And the Bible says he surpassed all the other kings of the earth. But Jesus is even far superior than that. I mean, he is high and lifted up in the heavens of heavens. And he has not had, his attendants are not lion statues. They are seraphims. The Bible says that the seraphims who are called burning ones. One commentator, Ray Ortland, said they are living flames of nuclear-powered praise. That's who attends King Jesus on the throne Yet they, they being sinless, cannot even look on God. They cannot be in his presence, nor can they go and serve in his behalf without completely covering themselves. That's why they have three pairs of wings. Why? Because even though they are created by God without sin and are incredibly powerful, the gap between them and God is infinite. And that is the kind of vision that Isaiah sees. He sees these beings giving praise and filling heaven with antiphonal worship back and forth, crying, holy, holy, holy is this one who is high and lifted up, the one whose train fills the temple. And then he says it one more time, and smoke filled the temple. I mean, his train fills it, the smoke fills it. The idea is you cannot contain God. God is always more than we ever bargain for. And the angels cry, holy, holy, holy. Perfection times perfection time perfection. And it's not just mentioned once. It's not just holy, our God. Not just holy, holy. 
but holy, holy, holy. And at that, the foundations of the thresholds, verse 4, they shook at the voice of these angels singing back and forth to one another. I don't know if you've ever heard a jet fighter go by and break the sound barrier, but it is intense burst of sound that cannot be controlled. Why is that important and why is it part of our text? Because, can I tell you, if we're going to understand the ultimate crisis, it's not just out there in our culture, but in here in our hearts. It'll never come by focusing on what's around us. It will, focus, it will come only as we focus on who God is. For Isaiah, seeing King Uzziah no longer on his throne had to be difficult. But seeing King Jesus on his throne was even more difficult. How do I know this? Well, look at the text. Before seeing King Jesus on his throne, all the judgment oracles, all the woe passages in chapter 5 are pronounced on other people. And for the whole book so far, here's what he's saying to everyone in Israel. Woe is he or woe is she. But once Isaiah's eyes change focus from King Uzziah to King Jesus, so does his words and his pronouncements of judgment. And you know the very first words Isaiah himself actually speaks in his book are these three words, woe is me. No longer woe is he or woe is she. It's now woe is me. And the prophetic judgments have not been sent out to others but they now point to himself. It is the ultimate crisis. Isaiah finally realizes that the crisis, the real crisis, is not just one that's out there. It's the one that's in here. Can I tell you, as bad as and serious as the COVID-19 crisis is out there, There is another crisis that far outweighs it, far more serious. And that is the crisis that is in here. You see, even a man as great as Isaiah the prophet was, he was orthodox, but he was empty. But now, for the first time, Isaiah sees himself. And you know why he sees himself accurately? Because he sees God accurately and his response to that is to finally come to the realization of where the real crisis is and the magnitude of that crisis and he says in verse 5 that I am lost and it's a Hebrew word that means disintegrating he is coming apart at the seams in the very presence of God And it's down to the very core of who he is. Listen to his words. He says, I am a man of unclean lips. The lips of the prophet, it was what he was. It's what he did. He pronounced God's words. It was the core of his identity. And he says, right down to the center of who I am, I am coming unraveled, he says, in the presence of a holy God. I am so unclean. And I I serve in the midst of a people of unclean lips. He says, it's not just everybody out there, it's me right here. In here is the problem, he says. 
It's, just as, it's as if in response to seeing God and hearing the angels or the seraphim cry, holy, 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 that he feels compelled in his own heart as he sees himself to cry, unholy, unholy, unholy. Have you ever seen God like that? Have you ever seen yourself like that? Do you understand that the sin virus is not just out there in our culture that is disintegrating, but the crisis is in here? Thankfully, the text doesn't end there. God has an answer to the sin crisis. And the answer to the sin crisis is a sin sacrifice. In verse 6, the text reads, Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. Every day in the temple, the altar of incense had to be lit. And every day, a priest would come in and take with holy tongs, because these were holy things, they couldn't touch them themselves. So they used a special tool, the tongs, and they would take a burning coal from the burnt offering from the burnt altar. He would take that coal and they would light the incense altar. And why that had to be done every day like that was because of this very reason. Because your worship and my worship and Israel worship can never be acceptable to God without a sacrifice first. See? So an angel takes tongs and he goes to the heavenly burnt offer, the burnt altar, and he takes these burnt offer and he he comes and he puts it onto the lips of Isaiah but it doesn't hurt him rather it heals him verse 7 records behold this has touched your lips notice the two phrases your guilt is taken away number one and number two your sin is atoned for see God took the burnt altar and the and the coal from that, and he healed him. The sacrifice would be which, which healed him and made him useful for service. But you and I, we would need, and Isaiah and everyone else who's ever lived, we would need a more permanent sacrifice. One that would atone for our guilt and our sin. Same book, Prophecy of Isaiah Chapter 53 tells us of such a sacrifice. Isaiah chapter 53, if you'll take the time, I would like you actually to turn there and we'll read it together. The same phrase, guilt and sin, are used here. In Isaiah 53, 10, it says, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. We know this to be a prophecy about the suffering servant, Jesus the Messiah. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt... He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. But there it is. His soul makes an offering for guilt. Jesus is the permanent sacrifice that would take away our guilt. Verse 12 reads, Therefore I'll divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Why? Why is he going to be honored so much? Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many. Jesus and his cross death 
and resurrection. He is the one who paid the penalty for your guilt and your sin and mine. Perhaps you're here and you're watching today and you might say, well, Pastor Walker, you don't really understand. You don't understand my guilt and how bad it is in here. Can I tell you, King Jesus does. He understands where you've been, what you've done, and what you're all about. And no matter what the level of your guilt is, no matter what the level of your sin is, Jesus' permanent sacrifice can forgive them all. See, he left his throne in heaven to make the cross his throne on earth. Why? So that he could remove, take away, forgive your guilt and your sin. And maybe you're here this morning, and not only are you thinking of the things you've done that displease God or the things you haven't done, you're thinking about the duplicity of your life and how the private and the public thing don't even align. And not only that, but you're not just thinking about it, you're feeling it. See, it's the weight, the burden of it, the guilt of it. And sometimes it keeps you awake at night. You wish you could go back. You wish you could touch the reverse button and everything could be replayed and you'd have other options. But it isn't that way. Things you've said, things you've thought, things you've done, things that have ruined people, their relationships perhaps have seared your conscience to a great degree, and you, you not only think about them, but you're feeling the weight of it. Can I tell you, this is what Jesus says. You need to get a vision of God. God is, yes, he is high, he is holy, he is all-powerful, he is completely pure, but this same transcendent God that is way beyond, you know what he does? He comes and he takes off the altar and makes a means of forgiveness. Our God didn't just stay on the throne but he made his throne a cross so that he could care and take care of and forgive your guilt, your sin, and mine. If you're here this morning and you've never put your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, you've never seen him for who he really is, if you've never realized that the crisis just isn't out there, it's in here, you can this morning put your faith and trust in him. You can call him and say, Jesus, I know that you are the sacrifice. You are the lamb of God, as John the baptizer said, who takes away the sin of the earth. And would you do this? Would you say, God, I need to repent. I need to return from my sin. I need to divorce myself from the way of life that I've chosen to live. And I want to have you as my Lord and Savior. I want to bow the knee to King Jesus and his lordship. And I want to ask for your forgiveness of all of my guilt and sin. And perhaps, can I say, if you're a Christian, you're watching part of our faith family, or you're just tuning in as a believer from wherever you might be, Perhaps this morning God allowed you to be here to watch this. You know why? Because he wants a fresh and a new to get a hold of your heart. He wants you to see him again for who he is. And maybe he's become unreal to you. Maybe complacency has set in. And maybe like Uzziah, maybe pride has begun to characterize your life. And you don't think or you do think that you're above the law of God. Here's what he says. Come back. Come back. Come back and yield your life and surrender your life to me and give me the worship and the glory and honor that I deserve because I am the king of heaven. We're going to pray together and then we'll close uh, with one final song. Father, 
we come to you this morning in King Jesus' name. And that alone is a privilege beyond which we are undeserving of. We're not worthy of it. But we come in King Jesus' name, the one who not only sat on the throne, but died on a cross. Thank you for his sacrifice. Thank you that he redeemed us, that he ransomed us from our guilt in our sin. And for those of us who have experienced that salvation, we rejoice and we're so grateful. But I pray for Christians today who are here, who desperately, and perhaps they realize for the first time in a long time this morning, they realize they need a fresh vision of your holiness and of how great you are and pure and powerful that you are, that you're worthy of the angels' praise and of all humanity. May it also include us. May we humble ourselves again and know again, as Isaiah did, the healing that comes from your forgiveness. Father, for those who, under the sound of my voice today, they've never known your salvation. They don't know that there's healing from heaven through Jesus. I pray, Lord, that you would, as they repent and turn their lives over to you and call on you to be their Lord and Savior, that you would bring healing, eternal healing, not only of their lips, but of their lives in totality as they call on you for forgiveness of their sin and their guilt. Master, would you do all this today that you might be worshipped and adored and glorified as you alone deserve? For it's in your matchless name we pray. Amen. that I 
Thank you for watching today. We do have another service tonight at 6 o'clock. We hope you'll be able to join us then. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all.